this way. So how about your Super Bowl champion, Kansas City? Yeah, you got some real fans, all right. That's, that's free. I didn't do it last week. So I was told that it's okay because they get to be the champions all year, right? So there you go. You're welcome. In life, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, we're told, right? And I've also noticed that not only the tough get going, but we don't state it, but it's true, the weak, they give up. When the going gets tough, the tough get going, and, and the weak, they quit. And we want to be more in the camp of the tough, but let's be real. If it happens in a race with runners, right, we talk about marathons. And in a marathon, they talk about the wall, Most of us, if we've given ourselves physically to something, we've gotten to a place where we've gotten so worn out. This is what happens. This is why the wall exists. Our glycogen, our our carbohydrate um, reserves, if you will, when they get to zero, when we get empty, our body wants to stop working. And so this happens when we push ourselves. Maybe we've trained at that distance, but we didn't train this fast. (laughs) And so we're using more energy because we're in the race or our heart rate's just going more because for whatever reason on this day, uh, we are just out of gas, so to speak. The glycogen hits zero and we hit a wall. And at that moment, it's either going to be willpower that gets us through or or we're going to quit because we can't go anymore. And if that happens to physical athletes in their competitions and in their racing, it's not a surprise that would, it would also happen with just the natural equities of life. It happens in many areas of life. We, we see it in marriages where uh, the going gets tough, and so it's either a time for a couple to lean in, or, and it doesn't even take two to do it. Sometimes it's just one to just decide it's time to give up. We see it not only in marriages, any relationship, any friendship. You've seen them go that way before. We see it in jobs. You know those folks that they're just like, I'm just, I'm at the end of my rope. I've had enough. And so it's either then that they make the decision to improve their corporation, they speak up and speak out, or they, they just start sending resumes and looking for something else, right? Because it happens. We hit walls where we just feel empty. Nobody cares about me. My boss doesn't support me, or my coworkers don't support me, or I'm all alone. And so it happens. It happens in education, right? I am just tired of paying for the books or taking the next class. I am just, I'm just ready to go work for a while. And so for whatever reason it is, some give up. Where others say, okay, it's time to lean in. I'm this close to the finish. I'm just going to, to get it done. I'm, I'm just going to dive in. It's that way with goals in life, right? We pursue these things, and, and we, we get to this uh, season in life when we go, wow, to, to reach that goal is now maybe not going to, happen unless I work my tail off or do this extra thing. And, I, and I'm not sure I want the cost of it, or maybe I do. And so we are at this crossroads of deciding, do I give myself to that goal or, or do I quit? Do I change my, my goals or my dreams? Life is filled with wall-hitting challenges. When we feel empty, when we feel depleted, we find ourselves often doing whatever we can to restore ourselves and to keep on going, or we quit and give up. If that happens in races, if that happens in life, it shouldn't be a surprise either that it happens in faith too, right? 
It happens with our relationship with God similarly when it gets tested. We've been studying in the book of James here. And from the beginning, that's what James has told, about, told us about. This struggle, uh, this, this tension, this trial, this temptation that we're going to endure. This isn't a short, quick uh, season. This is a long-suffering season thing. This is going to really take us to the end of our rope, so to speak, to decide if we're in or if we're out. Which way we're going to go. Are we going to be obedient and follow? of Jesus Christ, or are we going to cave to culture and follow our world? And so it should, should be uh, something that we can comprehend and understand that this is true. If it's true in life, if it's true in what we've done to this point, if it's true in races, then it's true in our faith as well. And as we continue in our study today, we're going to answer two questions about the walls and the battles that we face spiritually. These are the questions we're going to answer. Why, and indeed, is there a battle that we're fighting? Why are we in this fight? What's this battle all about? Why is it going on? And then the second question we're going to answer is, how do we win the war? If we are in a fight, how do we decide if we're feeling depleted? The glycogen, our spiritual glycogen's at zero, right? We're, we're just at the end of our ropes. We're deciding, wow, uh, do I just quit and give up on this Jesus? Or do I lean in and decide that this is the time to grow and get tough? I don't know, where am I? What is this all about? How do I win? How do I choose the growth side? How do I go forward to win not just the battle but the war? We're going to answer these questions as we get into James chapter 4 today. If you have your Bibles, please open them to James 4. And let's look at the first six verses as we get going here. The first six verses in James chapter 4 begin this way. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scriptures say the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Powerful text here. Why is there a battle is answered in these six verses? In an endurance race... Athletes literally give all they have to the race, and in pushing themselves, they bonk or hit the wall or run out of steam before the race has, has run out of distance. And it's at that moment that they have to make this decision in our spiritual life when we spiritually bonk, right? Sometimes something happens, and it's not even something we decided. Something in life happens. We feel like we bonked. We hit the wall. And we want to decide, what is it going to do? And, and maybe we just look back and go, why are we in this place? What is the tension all about? This is why there's tension. This verse gives us some clarity as to the reasons for the battle. Let's begin looking at the reasons. The first reason that we see is this. First reason for, for tension in the battle, for the first reason for the battle in general, is our personal passions. We have personal passions that put us in conflict with God's will and desire and design. We have personal passions that are conflicting God's. The external sign is fighting amongst others. Did you catch this? 
in the text, why are there fights among you? This is why, because we have these personal pleasures that are attacking us and and they're coming from within us. This is an election year. (laughs) Boy, howdy, we don't look very nice to each other at times. Wow, what's going on? We're at conflict within us. Friends, there's going to be no person that we can elect that is going to satisfy us spiritually. I'm not saying don't vote and and don't be uh, involved in in learning who we're voting for and all of those things. But that is the most political statement I'm going to make. I've got 52 shots a year to tell you about Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to waste it talking about some man or woman that cannot get us where we need to go from an eternal perspective. So if you're hoping your pastor gets more political, I want you to know this about your pastor. I vote. I've yet to miss an election of any kind since I've been 18 years of age. That is the most political thing I can tell you, is that I'm proud to be an American and to do my right. And I want you to do yours. I'm not going to influence you that way outside of telling you this is a great litmus test of of something that you should make your decisions based off of is this book and, and the convictions that the Holy Spirit gives you. Okay, that's it. There you got it. But why are we so politically enraged with, with one another? Because there are tensions among us. If, if we think that racism is gone in this nation, uh, I, I, I'm blown away that it still exists at all. I mean, my kids get it. My 11-year-old tells me, uh, Dad, really people think because of color of skin that somebody is less or more than I mean, a kid can get it, but this is what happens generationally. We hear it, don't we? And we see it. It is still happening in this great nation and around the globe. We are more concerned with where we're from than where we're going. Because of passions that are personal, that are within us, even spiritually, right? Somebody finds out you're a Christian. What's the first question they ask? What denomination? We're going to divide the body. Instead of unite the head, we're, we're going to divide the body because we are more concerned with, with are, are you my kind of crazy, right? Because that's, I mean, that's what it's really about. Or in our case, are you my kind of non-crazy? <laughs> no, we're still crazy, non-denominational Christians. That's, it is what it is, right? But we can make much of the denomination or non-denomination we're part of. We can make much about the name on the sign on the outside of the building. Or we can make much of, of God and Jesus Christ. We can talk about sexual orientation. We can talk about uh, economics. There is economical uh, division in our country, all because of personal passions. And James already hit on this when he talked about favoritism. If somebody walks into your meeting and they're well-dressed and looking good and you give them a seat of honor while someone that comes in looking, looking poor and ragged and you tell them, you've got to sit on the floor over here, there's not enough seats, we've shown favoritism, right? And, and this is equal opportunity for everyone. James is hitting it in every area. And what does it come from? It comes from these personal passions that are waging wars within us. And it's showing up in our relationships. James communicates clearly. These external battles come from the internal war over our passions inside of us. That he already talked about in chapter 1. That these temptations come because of our own personal pleasures that drag away and entice us so that we give in to them. This is what's at stake. Why is all this important? This is what's at stake. We are so privileged as a people that we fight for our personal convenience 
at the expense of long-term relational equity. That's why we wage war. Why do people have political bends that they're so passionate about? Most often it's for their own personal comfort. And I'm I'm talking about every side of, of the aisle, of every aisle. Because we are so concerned with me and I, we, we forget that we are part of a greater family that exists even outside the walls of any church. They are all God's children, right? God wants them all to come to a saving faith and repentance. And we get opportunities as Christ followers to care about everyone or we can care about one. We can't have it both ways, but we are more concerned with being right in our world and in our culture than we are with being in a right relationship with God. And certainly we have little concern for others having a right relationship with God by our external realities. Why is the church in decline in North America today? And I'm not talking about any denomination. I'm talking about Christianity and everything that puts itself under the umbrella. I believe it's in decline much because the church has not done a good job of making Jesus the head. We've gotten to a place where it's about a country club instead of Christ's kingdom and caring about the things that he cares about, which is most often those that are not yet a part of us. We want more than we get. We never have enough, so we fight for everything that we can take. One reason we're in a battle is because of the personal passions that fight God's will in God's ways. But notice that's not the only reason why there's a battle. James also told us that there's another reason for the battle, and that's because we have wrong requests. Some of us, all of us, I know I've been there, we have wrong requests. Beginning in the second half of the second verse, James reminds us that we don't have because we haven't asked. Well, some of us, we want to rebuttal God a little bit. We say, well, well, God, I, I did ask. I asked my doctor. I asked my lawyer. I asked my friends, I, I even put a suggestion on, on Facebook, you know, and, and asked for the whole world to weigh in and say, give me a recommendation, I need the right plumber. So God, I asked. But he said, you don't have because you didn't ask the one that can provide what we need, right? Some of us didn't receive because we failed to ask him. <laughs> and then he goes on to say that maybe it wasn't that we failed to ask him. Maybe the things we asked for were things that God could not give us because he knew that they could not satisfy us. He could not give them to us because these are the things that would keep us from him. And so instead he had to say no because we were just going to use that for our own pleasure or our own benefit. The very things that are dragging away and enticing us, that are, that are conceiving in us sin that is going to lead to death in us so that we are eternally separated from God. And so we bonk and he says, I'm sorry, it's better for you to bonk than for you to get what you don't need. And so sometimes God is going to say no, we don't get... Because we ask with wrong motives. Some of us, we have wrong requests. It's long past time that we ask God what he wants. I think this is what we'll find if we ask him. God cares less about the chief of staff than he does the hearts and eternities of all the people. I think that's what we're going to find. When we've asked and didn't receive, it's because we were asking with wrong motives. Our personal passions even show up when we do pray. And God's no responses are most often protection. We just don't see it that way in the middle of it because we just really wanted that job or we really wanted that thing to work out. 
not realizing that God may have something better for us. So that in the midst of whatever situation we're in, we're reminded that this isn't home. This isn't what it's eternally all about. And so I can breathe and stop and reflect and say, wow, my last chapter isn't written. It's going to be okay. I'm not going to have to go this alone. I need to go to the requester that right, or ask the right individual because it's not about our word formula when we pray, right? There's not any power in our words. There's power in the one to whom we pray. And when we go with him, with his motives, praying that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, all of a sudden we line ourselves with him and we begin wanting the things that he wants and we get a lot more yeses from him and we get a play in the game in a, in a neater and more fulfilling way than we've ever done before. Notice there's a third reason for the battle and that's our adulterous associations. Did you get that? He calls us adulterous people in verse 4. Thanks for being kind to me, James. And he cl clarifies what he means. He says, your friendship with the world is hostility or hatred towards God. This happens at a lot of levels. We choose the world's ways over God's will and his ways. And James reminds us that this pits us as God's enemy. Why use such strong words of saying that we hate God or we are an enemy of God? Why even use the strong wording of adultery when we choose to cave to culture at times? This is why. Because spiritually, that is what we do when we claim to follow Christ and then turn and give ourselves to culture. We are playing the harlot. We are in that moment saying that what God desires for us is not as important as what we will take from the world. That we would rather the, the world lead us than, than God to lead us. And in that place, he says, we have played the prostitute. We have these associations that cannot make us right or good with God. And yet we cave to them. But don't miss the fourth reason why there's a battle. And this one is subtle. I think many of us miss it until we slow this text down. Verse 6 uh, makes it very clear. Verse 6a, the first B part of verse 6, tells us that God's grace is the reason, is one of the reasons why we're in this battle. Verse 5 is a problem verse. I got to tell our Christian basics class that we were going to have a problem verse in our text today. It's a problem verse for translators. Let's look at verse 5 again. Verse 5 reads this way. Do you think it's without reason that the scriptures say the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? Well, that doesn't even sound clear. What do you mean by that? I think the Christian standard version didn't want to make a... a a statement one way or the other so they even made it unclear in their in their statement but this is what it means it either means one of two things when you look at the greek it either means that god's spirit is envious of our giving ourselves to culture god and his spirit is envious of us he wants us to return to him or it means that the spirit that god gave to us chases after culture it's envious we lust more and more for culture we want to cave to culture this is why it's not the most problem passage in scriptures, because the context of scriptures say that both are right. God is jealous for us, and he wants us when we've given ourselves to culture, and the reality is we give ourselves to culture. 
So it's not too big of a problem. And so a lot of translators, they're going to get caught up in verse 5, and they're going to miss verse 6. And verse 6 is a big reason that there is a struggle, that there is a battle over our spirit. And this is it. Don't miss it. Verse 6. God gives greater grace. Why is that a part of the battle? This is why Jesus is not okay with us just siding with culture as though he's not going to put up a fight. Jesus says, you want to give yourselves to culture? I'm sorry about it, but I'm still here. And I'm going to keep whispering in your ear, I love you. I care about you. You were adulterous. You went away. You chose the world. I'm still not going to leave you. I'm not going anywhere. God gives greater grace. Greater grace than what? His grace is greater than our adultery. Why is there a battle? Because we are fighting against our personal passions. We are fighting against our wrong requests and adulterous associations. But God is not going to just let us go. A greater piece of the battle on his end is that he has fought for us and is fighting for us and is not going to give up fighting for us. He's never going to give up on us so easily. Even when we don't want him, he wants us. And that's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? Let us never forget that beauty of God, that even if we choose to go the way against him, he chooses us every single time. Let's read verses 7 to 12. Verses 7 to 12, James continues this way. Therefore, therefore, we're in the battle, right? Therefore, how do we win the war? This is it. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? How do we win the war? Second question, we get this answer in 7 through 12. And James jumps right into the answer. So let's jump right into it ourselves. What are the ways to win the war? It begins this way with submission to God. Submit. To God, if we want to win the war, we cannot win the war apart from God. Jesus' words in John 15 were, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nobody aspires to do nothing, right? We all aspire to do something. Well, we can do nothing if we go away from God. But with God, what's the contrary to that? With God, we're going to do something because God is always going to produce something good in us when we're with him. But submit to God. He goes on to talk about what this looks like a little later in the verse. We draw near to him. And he draws near to us. This is what's so beautiful about that. God has the power and the ability to take away our life. And yet, this God who is scary and ferocious is also safe. And he says, draw near to me and and, and I'll draw near to you. We will have this relationship, this covenant that is close. We will have 
fellowship and communion together because I care about you. I'm not going anywhere. You draw near to me, I'm still here. Whenever we've run, it's because we've left him. He hasn't left us. And even there, it's typically our backs just turned on him. He's right there tapping the shoulder most of the time saying, hey, don't forget, I love you. (laughs) You can come home anytime now. I'm ready. Let his word and his ways cleanse our living so that we're no longer double-minded like we read about in the first chapter he brings up again here. What do you mean by double-minded, James? What are you talking about? This is double-minded living. When we are fighting our ways and ideals against his will and ways and trying to live just his, his will and ways. That's the double-minded living. When we're living in both the tension of living for ourselves and the tension of living for him, at one point or another, we're going to give to either culture or to Christ. And, and usually our bonk moment, our wall-hitting moments are because we're just so spread in the middle of that tension that we know we want to follow Christ and or we've given ourselves so much to culture that we're feeling the death that, and the brokenness and the emptiness that goes there. And so in both of those moments, we can hit the wall or bonk and we're just there and we're going, man, I don't even know what's next. What does this relationship, this vertical relationship with God look like so I can even involve my horizontal relationships with other mankind? So I can love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I can love my neighbor as myself. What does this even look like in me? How do I play this out in my life? It begins with submitting to God. Rabbi Zacharias says it this way. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. That's the tension. That's the bonk moment. He's saying that, look, submit to me. But if you submit to culture, it's always going to result in sin. And sin, 100% of the time, is going to take you further than you want to go. I don't want to go there. Well, guess what? If we choose that way, we're going to go there and further. And guess what? When we get there, we're going to stay longer than we ever wanted to stay to begin with. It's going to be tough to get out. And it's going to cost us. And not just financially it's probably going to cost us relationally it's already cost us the time it it costs so much when we choose the way of culture over the way of christ and we don't get it back and so the segue there is we get the second piece of how to win the war and james says it's this way right on the the heels of submitting ourselves to god we, we we lean into god and at the same time we put up resistance against the devil Some of us need to do a better job at saying no, so I'm going to give you the freedom to try it. Say no. You just told me. I I get it. I'd rather you follow Christ than me anyways. That's good. I'm proud of you. Resist the devil, right? What happens when we resist the devil? What does this text tell us? What will he do? Verse 7. He will flee. Don't miss this. This might be the most mind-blowing piece of this text. We are promised that the devil does not have the persistence that our Savior has. We are promised that the devil in his puny practices does not have the stamina he bonks when we do not give in to him. When we say no, he puts his tail between his legs and he runs. 
Jesus is never going to leave us, but he will because he doesn't love us. We get it? This is a grand relationship, and we're either going to give ourselves to that guy that doesn't care about us. He cares more about himself and us. He's just happy when we're with him. But he'll leave us broken too. This one never does. He is never going to leave us. This one, when we resist him, he runs. I want a relationship like this. That when I submit to God, it's full. And and when I resist him, it hurts me. Because he stays. Anybody hear that verse or that verse, that song on, on Caleb, He's the God Who Stays? Wow, that song was, I was studying this text and this just hit me this week. That's what that song is in my head again and again and again. He's the God Who Stays. He's going to be there. If we resist the devil, he will run. Jesus' grace is greater. He will not give up. The devil will. The devil will come back when we are uh, perceived to be weak. But he is not omnipresent like God is. He comes and he goes. God stays every time. Verses 9 and 10 help us know how to resist the devil. Look at verses 9 and 10 again with me there. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What what do you mean? What are we mourning? We get this. Jesus even reminds us these words back in Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, 5, I believe. Might be verse 4. Um, so you get to check me on it, make sure it's right. But the second beatitude is this. After the first beatitude of blessed are the poor in spirit, there's the kingdom of heaven. What qualifies us for the kingdom of heaven? Our sinfulness and our recognition that we need a savior. The second one is blessed are those who mourn. What are we mourning? We mourn our spiritual emptiness. We mourn the fact that we're sinners. Be miserable and mourn. Our sin, our our resistance of God should be mourned, not a resistance of the devil. We're supposed to do that. But when we submit to God, the closer we get to God and his righteousness, the more we realize, I don't deserve this. And this stinks for you. you got to put up with me. And and I don't like that because I want to be equally yoked. I want to deserve this even though I never will, and it's never going to be about me. It's always going to be about you. I'm sorry, and I mourn that, and, and, I, and I quit doing that, and I, and I start living different so that I can be near the one whose arms are bigger than mine, who wraps me up and takes me in, because that's what it's always been about and always will be about. So it takes humility. What does it mean to humble ourselves? This is a good example for you. If you come to an intersection your car is there, and maybe you've got a little four-door sedan like most Americans, right? You've got your little sedan, or wait, I think the SUVs are taking over. So maybe you've got an SUV, and there's a semi at the same intersection, and the semi really stopped before you, and you're going, I think I can get across before the, the semi, <laughs> right? I mean, because they start slow, right? I mean, I can get there at this four-way stop. I'm, I, you know, I'm I'm risky. And you know what the semi-driver does? They say, go ahead and go. The semi-driver knows this. If you run into him, it's going to hurt you more and it's going to hurt him. But in humility, that's what humility looks like. Sometimes we come with our egos, with our self-passions, even up against God. And sometimes God says, okay, I'm going to humble myself and and let you have your way. But for us, sometimes we got to make our passions and not so big and humble ourselves before God and say, you know what, I'm going to yield today. 
I'm going to give in to the one who's greater than me. You need to go so I can follow you. You know the way. You know how to get everything where it needs to go. I'm I'm, going to just trust you. You navigate. I'll go. Maybe it doesn't mean I I go as fast as I wanted. I might even have to wait these five seconds, but it's probably going to be okay, God, because you probably have something better for me at the end of it anyways. Then the fourth, or the third, excuse me, way to win the war is to not criticize one another. I like how James (laughs) goes back to this. He really talks about the law and it being just. Really, the law doesn't need to defend itself. The law is always going to be good. And it's going to show us that we're not good. We don't have to defend the law. And whenever we judge somebody else, whenever we criticize somebody else based on their uh, sinfulness or their uh, lack of Christian living or whatever it is, right? Instead of sometimes, man, we can focus more on that than we can focus on sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thing that's going to change us, the thing that's going to cause us to live a new life. And we get so focused as though we could stop doing that and be made right with Christ. That can never be true. And so James reminds us we can't criticize one another as though we are the lawgiver. There's only one lawgiver and judge. Well, who is it? Who is it? Well, it's obvious. It's God. It's not us. And so that's not you serve God in that. Do we play a role? Yes, we share the gospel. And the gospel includes God's design. It includes his truth and his grace. And, and, and that all needs to be included. But we can do it in a way that is not judgmental. See, the battle is not unreasonable. There are reasons for the battle. And, and when we're honest, much of the battle is because of our own personal passions. It's things in us and our adulterous associations that we've given ourselves to. Or maybe we've just asked with wrong requests. Because they, we've not gone to God, and when we have gone to God, let's be honest, it's been selfish. God, instead of asking for my great aunt, aunt Sally's health and recovery, uh, or instead of asking for her spiritual well-being and that somebody would share the gospel with her and that she would accept you, I'm more concerned with, with whether or not she's going to get over the flu. And so our praying to God is more concerned with flu than it is with eternal salvation. And I'm not saying that God's not concerned with sickness and those other things. He certainly is. But let's not miss those opportunities to see bigger requests that matter more to God. Opportunities that we miss every day for divine appointments that are right before us. And because of God's grace, the battle is reasonable. But don't miss that the war is winnable. I think sometimes we walk this fear and we feel like the enemy's already won. We, we feel the world slipping away from the grasp of God, and we wonder, man, God, are, are you really in control? Do you got this? And so we want to cave, right? We feel like we bonk, and we're sitting here going, I don't know, can I, can I trust him? Is his grace sufficient for me in my weakness? Can I really run to him and he be there? I mean, at least I know what I get when I give myself to this. At, at least... I can be okay with my brokenness. At least I can be okay with my emptiness. I don't know if I can be okay with being rejected by the divine one. And the scriptures say he's not going to reject us. He's going to bring us. But there's tension because it's our stories about us, right? And so in humility, this war is winnable. We need to submit to God, resist the enemy, and not focus on criticizing each other as much as helping each other to Christ. Bottom line today is simply this. Fight each battle. It's worth fighting because it's reasonable. And win the war 
through Christ. We can't do it on our own. We've got to submit ourselves to Him. It's going to take us fighting, though. We can't bonk and lay down and quit. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about Christianity being for the weak. <laughs> I haven't read that one in here. <laughs> no, we've got to live countercultural, and it's going to be hard. Every step of the journey. The good news is when we turn from him, he stays. I hope today you hear, maybe whisper in your ear. Regardless of what you've done, I love you. I'm for you. And it's reason to stand up and to fight the battle, to resist the enemy. Watch him run. Any David Crowder fans, that's not a popular song, but uh, Run Devil Run's a good tune if you like good music from David Crowder. Stellar dude, great tune. And maybe this week you need to watch the devil run. You need to put up a little more resistance. Maybe you're here today, you've never made Jesus Savior and Lord of your life. You're ready to submit to him and be all in with him. And if that's true you today, meet me down here. For those of us who've said yes to Jesus, he is our Savior and our Lord. We've got to put up a resistance to live for him and let's focus less on criticizing one, one another and more time sharing the gospel with one another, encouraging one another so that he can have the glory of more wins, kingdom wins, as we spend more time submitting to him and resisting the enemy, winning the war. Let's stand together. Our band's going to come and, and close us out of here. And if you want prayer or, or make a decision today of any kind, uh, just meet me down here and I'll pray with you or, or grab me on your way out today. God, we just thank you. For loving us. We thank you that in spite of anything that we've ever done, it's not been too great for you to leave us. And thank you for the reminder that, Father, the enemy does not love us like you love us. And give us wisdom to give ourselves to you instead of to culture. To give ourselves to you and to recognize your love for us. And God, may that cause us to look and to live differently because you love us so much and because we love you. And God, as your body, let us know and believe that when we say these words, we love you, we mean it. We do indeed care about you and about your gospel and about what you've already done. Thank you for your word, your special revelation. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into this dark world to atone for us, to go in to the Holy of Holies, to save us from ourselves, from our sins, for all of eternity. We give you the glory, both now and forevermore. In Jesus we pray. Amen.